So our scripture reading today is from 2 Samuel 19. We'll be picking up the rest of 2 Samuel 19 here as we uh, continue our way through 2 Samuel. I don't know where we were, um, my family and I, but we were away from home for a while. And, uh, but after our time away from home, I had to go somewhere else. I, as I try to recall this, I can only assume it was to our, our church's national uh, meeting that occurs once a year. And so I went to this meeting. It's a week-long meeting, but for some reason, we had some sort of vacation that lined up ahead of time. And so, uh, and Amy and the kids stayed away for a little bit longer while I went to this meeting, and then they came home. Usually when we come home, I don't know if you guys feel this way when you're away from your house for a while, but you come home and you walk in and you just take this deep breath because, like, it's so delightful, the smell of your own house. Don't you feel that way? Like when you, even visiting extended family, I mean, they're fine. They don't smell awful, but they don't, their houses don't smell like your house. And you get home and you're like, oh yeah, we're home. And we all, all of us, all of the Baileys enjoy that sense. Although this moment when Amy and the kids got home was not quite uh, one of those moments. Uh, at some point during our travels, a thunderstorm had come through Stafford County, and it had apparently struck close enough to home that it tripped the GFI, uh, outside GFI uh, breaker. So, you know, the whole, some of you are nodding, some of you are like, I don't know what that means. Uh, I can't go into it in any details. There's a thing that keeps you from killing yourself when you plug in a wet, when you lick the socket, it will trip. Don't try this. Never mind, kids. I told you I couldn't explain it. Anyway, it had tripped all of our outside outlets. Uh, what Amy and my kids found out was that that included the outlet that provided the power to the refrigerator in our garage. And that refrigerator had in the freezer, it was stuffed to the gills, if you'll pardon the pun, with rainbow trout and salmon and halibut. I think it had some buffalo in it. There was definitely chicken and ground beef and all sorts of things. Um, And it just warmed up in that garage and oozed a, a substance out of that freezer that, that probably is too evil to even exist in hell. Uh, and I just remember weeping, laughing at the texts I kept getting from Amy telling me about this. And always, they all started with, why? Why does this always happen when you're not here? And I will attest to you that when I got home and the fridge was back in, like they dragged the fridge out after dumping, uh, shoveling really the stuff out of the freezer. They dragged the fridge into the front yard. Uh, they hosed it out, sprayed, dumped Lysol, anything they could, did this, and then left it open to dry, did this process repeatedly 
And when I got home, the fridge was running again. And even then, it was enough to gag you when you walked into the garage for at least another month. I cannot even imagine what it was like when it hadn't been cleaned out. Sometimes going back home is not everything you thought it was going to be. Uh, This is sort of what we come across in chapter 19. Absalom, David's son, Absalom is dead. He and his rebellion that he had uh, fomented is gone. A a battle, a single battle in which 20,000 Israelites died, most of them the followers of Absalom. But uh, it's over. And yet David remains on the other side of the Jordan. He has not yet gone back to Jerusalem. Because after all, what is the temperature of Israel? I mean, nearly all of Israel... Uh, either willingly or had been persuaded to follow Absalom. They had anointed Absalom as their king. What what will it even look like for David to come back? Uh, The nation has foolishly backed a usurper. Uh, This section kind of reminds us, it looks, it, it begins with looking at all of Israel and their response to the return of King David. And in the middle are sort of three individual responses to the return of King David. So we might be looking at the people of God, but then in the middle we look at three persons of God and their uh, response to David's return. And as we look at it, it looks, you know, it's Everything that we see, we have to ask, is this really, is what's being said really what's going on? And so that's why the outline is in question form. Is this now one nation under God, indivisible? Uh, Is this, do we see a picture of an accuser who is now eating humble pie and a deserter who just needs a shower and the brig? And is it just an old man who just wants to be left alone? Our scripture reading is just going to be the opening and closing because that's how uh, the passage deals with all of Israel. And then as we move through, we'll look at the passage in between as we look at all three of the individuals in their response to David's return. So if you would stand with me, we'll read verses 8 to 15 and then skip over to verses 41 to 43. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, Say to the elders of Judah, Why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? 
and say to Amasa, you, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man so that they sent word to the king. Return both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. Now, if you'll flip over to verse 41. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense? Or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So you see, it should be a sweet homecoming. It should be uh, a wonderful time. The king has been in exile. Now he's returning. Uh, he's been, it's been affirmed to him by God, at least, that he is God's chosen king of Israel. And yet, it just something is off. Something just doesn't smell right. Um, remember that nearly all of Israel either passively accepted Absalom's rebellion or else actively supported and took part in that rebellion. And so they are understandably a little nervous. They are remembering, hey, wasn't it King David who delivered us from all our enemies? Wasn't it King David who defeated all the Philistines? And now he has fled, and Absalom, whom we anointed, is dead. It's interesting that they seem to like be looking to everyone else but themselves. Everyone's saying, so why don't you go get him? Why don't, why don't you talk about, why aren't you talking about bringing the king back? There's very little we other than the acknowledgement of, well, we anointed Absalom. Because remember, it wasn't the people's job to anoint the king. It wasn't their privilege to anoint the king. God anointed the kings of Israel. It was God's place. He would send a priest or a judge to anoint the king of Israel. The people didn't anoint and choose their own kings, and they're recognizing, look, we did this. We anointed Absalom, and it sort of blew up in our faces. So now they're having second thoughts. I don't know if it's necessarily because of the sinfulness of their actions. I think it's more because they're realizing they've backed the wrong horse. Uh, and hindsight for all of us is better than foresight. It is always easier to look back. This is... Uh, just, this is classic Monday morning quarterbacking. They are realizing we probably 
should have stayed with David. Notice it's interesting that Judah is uh, even more than the rest of Israel conspicuously quiet or absent. Now, why would that be? It could be that Judah recognizes that they had a heavier part in supporting Absalom. After all, Absalom went to Judah, went to Hebron, which is in Judah, to be anointed to start his coup and take over as king. Absalom, as David's son, was from the tribe of Judah. And so most likely, most of his support was from the tribe of Judah. David sends a challenge and a peace offering. His challenge is sort of a challenging their pride. I mean, you're, you're my people. You want to be the last tribe to bring me back? Don't you want to be the first tribe to bring me back? But then he also offers this odd, almost peace offering. He says, I'm going to make Amasa the commander of my army. Now, we can hear that and think, well, that's because Joab is kind of not a very good guy. I mean, Joab killed Absalom against David's wishes. Joab has, has done a lot of kind of shady things, and uh, he will only do even shadier things as we read on in 2 Samuel. But I mean, think about what David is doing. So an army has just tried to take over your kingdom, and so they've lost, so the commander of that army didn't do what he meant to do, so he's not even that great of a commander, but your response to that is, well, I'm going to fire my commander and hire the commander of the enemy's army to take over our army. That seems like a good idea. That seems like a, that's, that's a normal, that's the normal way of things, isn't it? When, when you've defeated another army, you fire the guy that defeated them and hire their defeated general and say, okay, this is how we're going to do this. I feel like, like I haven't, most of you know this, like I, I didn't serve in the military, but even I, even I feel like that's like a, that's not what you do. You don't fire your general who won the war and hire the general who lost the war, who was killing your men yesterday. But this is what David does. Is there wisdom in it? I don't know. There's, um, I don't think it's godly wisdom. I think it's, it's a sense of diplomacy. It's a sense of here's how I'm going to get um, Judah's support. It's Shrewd diplomacy, I'd say. It's also, I mean, we don't want to rule out that it's also a resentful act against Joab, against Joab's sharp, sharp rebuke of him, against Joab's retributive act against Absalom. Uh, all of these things uh, play into it. And so, uh, so Judah is swayed and they go and meet David at Gilgal. Now, this is actually a, a good choice. Because if you recall anything from some of your Old Testament history, Gilgal was the town that, first of all, where Joshua uh, 
stationed all of Israel. This is where they, would co- they came just as they were entering the promised land. They'd come to Gilgal and recommit. They, had a, uh, they were... Uh, the men were circumcised who hadn't been circumcised during the wilderness wanderings. So Gilgal is this place of recommitting to God and recommitting to following God and God's covenant and God's law. And so calling Israel, or specifically Judah, to Gilgal is, is a calling God's people back to following God's ways. So he's, he is, he's calling them to come where they can recommit to the Lord's anointed and therefore recommit to the Lord himself. But the chapter ends with such a typical petty argument among the tribes of Israel, doesn't it? I mean, the the other 10 tribes of Israel are like, well, hey, this was our idea. Why does Judah, why did Judah get to go first? I mean, we're the, we, there's 10 of us. We have way more interest in who the king is than one silly little tribe down in the south. And the pettiness, it sounds like the pettiness just grows from both sides. The only reason the argument ended is because apparently Judah had more angry words than the rest of Israel to talk about this. It just ends, uh, it's, it's disappointing how the chapter ends. It's just, it's a reminder to all of us that, I mean, it's in us all. I mean, the pettiness that we can argue over, I don't know if you take it as encouraging or discouraging, it's not a new thing. Uh, The ways that we can find ways to disagree with each other, when without looking at it this way, we would realize we're all united under the same anointed king. And yet it's just easier to focus on what we disagree about rather than to focus on who has united us, and that's Christ. Now, in the middle of this chapter, we get to see three individuals. We get to see three individuals whom we've seen in previous sections of this entire uh, issue. We've seen these three men before, during David's exiting of Jerusalem and exiting of Israel. In verses 16 to 23, we come back and see Shimei. How many of you, any of you kids, remember Shimei? Anyone remember who Shimei was or what he did? So Shimei uh, was the guy who was throwing rocks and dirt and curses at David as he left. And do you remember what one of David's, one of David's generals wanted to do? What, what did he want to do to Shimei? He wanted to cut off his head because people without heads have bad aim and he wouldn't be able to hit them anymore with the rocks. Well, so here we read about Shimei in verse 16. And Shimei, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite from Bahurim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. With him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and his his 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Jirah, fell 
down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, let not my Lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong in the day my Lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come on this day, the first of all the house of Joseph to come down to meet my Lord, the king. Abishai, the son of Zariah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For I do not know that, for, for do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king gave his oath. So, what is this? What do we have here? Is this a genuine repentance? Uh, is this, there's some parts of it that, that sound very genuine. There's other parts of it that sound, I don't know, contrived. He rushes to the king. He points out, hey, I'm the first, you know, first, I'm the first one of all the tribes other than Judah. I'm the first one here. I I feel like you should notice that. He, uh, his language, other than that one line where he says, I know I've sinned. He says, listen, let's, let's just forget the whole thing. Don't, don't, let's not remember. I was, I mean, I don't, like, that wasn't, that wasn't me. That was, I was, I was having such a bad day. You know, my therapist told me not to go out that day because uh, I would probably end up throwing rocks at people. And it's just, it's a thing I do. I don't even know how the rocks got in my hands. Let's just, let's just forget it. Let's just, let's pretend it never happened. I'm embarrassed. You're upset. We can, let's just, let's move on. He says, or, or just don't take it to heart. I mean, you're so sensitive. Man, I throw a rock at your head and you act like, like it's a mean thing. Like, come on, take a joke for goodness sake. A little rock, a little dirt. You know, sticks and stones, well, they were sticks and stones, never mind. Uh, but really, and isn't this sometimes how we apologize to each other? I did wrong, but you overreacted. Yeah, I'm, I'm yes, of course I sinned, but let's just, let's just move on, for goodness sake. Can't we just, let's just forget it. Look, don't take it so personally. I... I was just kidding. You know, you know how I get when you get like that. That's a wonderful way to apologize. Uh, you know, it's interesting that the commentaries are pretty split on whether this is a sincere repentance or he's just saving face, covering his butt. Here's Abishai. He begins to sound a little bit like uh, an English comedy troupe. Kill him! It's like, dude, calm down. Abishai is the proverbial hammer. You know the 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 proverb that to a hammer every problem is a nail. Uh, 
to Abishai, the answer is kill him. Obviously, you kill him. But I love David's answer. David's response is simply, this is not the day for that. This is not the day for executing people. This is a day that we are celebrating that God has affirmed, I am the king that he chose. He hasn't rejected me. He has forgiven me. He has kept me in this place. This is not the time to kill and execute God's justice. What what Abishai is demanding is really, he's saying, the law demands justice. Abishai is, in one sense, he is the representative of the law. This man has cursed the Lord's anointed. He deserves to die. And David's point is not that he doesn't deserve to die. His point is that Today is a day for mercy. It's a reminder to us, even as we look at these commentaries that aren't, you know, they're not inspired. It is a reminder for us that there is a judge in heaven who knows the hearts of man and men and women. And we don't always know the sincerity of one another's repentance, do we? We don't get to know that. We do know that Scripture teaches us if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and forgives us our sins. You know, David forgives Shimei and later warns his son Solomon Keep an eye on Shimei. He's a scoundrel. He shows mercy not because Shimei deserves it, not because he's worded it just right. It's because without mercy, Shimei is dead. He shows mercy because it's what Shimei needs. Now we move from Shimei to Mephibosheth. If you remember, Ziba who we just read about being the other uh, fellow from the tribe of Benjamin who comes running to uh, serve David. Uh, The story sort of fast-forwards to Jerusalem. When David gets home to Jerusalem, he'll meet Mephibosheth, who was the son of Jonathan. When Jonathan and Saul had died in battle, uh, Mephibosheth was just a five-year-old boy, and his nurse grabbed him, and if you remember, she dropped him, and he ended up being crippled in his legs for the rest of his life. But uh, David, because of his friendship with Jonathan and his oath to Jonathan, his covenant with Jonathan, he, he takes Mephibosheth in, he eats, Mephibosheth eats at his table, he's taken care of, he provides, he restores all of Saul's lands to him. But then when David goes into exile, Ziba comes and says, hey, Mephibosheth isn't interested in following you anymore. And so he gives all of the land to Ziba. And it sounds like a story, but David's, you understand, David's, he has to make a decision fast. He's in exile. He's running for his life. So he's like, look, just take, you, you get all the land now. And now he comes back to Jerusalem. Here's Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, don't you love the Bible and the strange details? Well, you haven't seen the passage yet, but you should. You should look at it. Don't you love how it says he had not taken care of his feet or trimmed his beard 
or washed his clothes since the day David went into exile. So I don't know why it matters about his feet. I guess to let you know that it's really gross. Uh, My kids would tell you why the focus is on his feet because uh, they tell me that my feet are pretty gross even when I care for them daily. Uh, But here's Mephibosheth. Uh, He's a mess. He's filthy. David says to him, hey, Mephibosheth, why, why didn't you go with me? And then we hear this tale from Mephibosheth. He says, I wanted to. I was going to. My servant deceived me. Uh, I, I had gone out to uh, saddle a donkey because, you know, I'm lame. Like, uh, he, he wants to make sure that David remembers, not that he can't see it, but he's like, hey, I'm lame. I can't walk. And the next thing I know, Ziba has taken all the donkeys. Now, has Ziba taken all the donkeys? I don't know. We don't know. You know, the author seems to take Mephibosheth's explanation of the details uh, as a more accurate explanation than Ziba's. Uh, we see it in Mephibosheth's response when, when, Abs- when David says, listen, I'm just going to split the, I'll just split the land between you. He, he stops Mephibosheth in telling the story. He says, listen, all right, enough, stop talking. I'm just going to split the land between you. The interesting thing with Mephibosheth is that, again, we have an issue of justice, don't we? But now, instead of mercy as the opposite of justice, really what we see is injustice. Because either that land all belongs to Ziba now because Ziba's correct, or it all belongs to Mephibosheth Mephibosheth now because Ziba lied. But splitting the land isn't mercy It's injustice. It's a reminder that David is still a man. He is still a sinner. He still has to assess things before him. Our hope isn't that, like, when you look at justice, there are two opposites of justice, and they aren't the same. Like, when God does not pour out his justice on you, it's not injustice that he gives you. It's mercy. When we do this, sometimes what we end up doing is we offer injustice. But injustice and mercy are not the same thing. God is never unjust. But God is often merciful. And that is, that's what we celebrate at the table, the mercy of God, that his justice was satisfied on the cross. In Romans, we're told the cross is how God can be both just and the justifier of sins. And so so we see not injustice acted out on the cross, but actually mercy and justice acted out on the cross. Now we are, uh, it's Communion Sunday, uh, so we, we don't have time to talk about old man Barzillai. Uh, uh, we'll see if we can work him into next week's passage. But I would urge you to read that passage. Because at first reading, it just sounds like it's just this crotchety old man. It just sounds like a guy who's not happy unless he's unhappy. 
Uh, we were having lunch with my grandfather one day, and I was asking him how he was feeling. And he just, as straight as possible, looked me in the eye and said, Well, I quit buying green bananas. Yeah, and that was like at first I was like, Oh, <laughs> I get that. So, you know, here's Barzillai. He's like, what, what is the point of going to Jerusalem? Do I, do I look like I, I can't taste good food? I can't taste bad food. I can't hear if the women are singing good, if the women are singing bad. Just let me die next to my parents' grave. Or is it a sign of contentment? Is it a sign of I have done what it has been given to me to do? and I am content. I don't need to live my days out in Jerusalem. I am content to serve God from where I serve him. It's good for us to see pictures of contentment, even in the Old Testament. So let's, uh, let's close in prayer and uh, celebrate communion together, celebrate the mercy and justice that we have in Christ. Lord, Father in heaven, we are grateful to you that you are never unjust. You are never in such a hurry that you have to just make a snap decision. We know that you satisfied your justice through the sacrifice of your son so that we might have mercy. We are like Shimei. Our confessions are often bargainings and you don't forgive us because we have worded it right or figured it out or made the right commitments for next time you forgive us because it's what we need without your forgiveness we would not uh, survive in your presence we celebrate that commit that forgiveness here at the table lord jesus would you feed and nourish us and strengthen us for the work that you've called us to Would you make us merciful people toward each other, toward our children, toward our spouses and our neighbors? Grant to us wisdom and discernment for the glory of Jesus' name. Amen.